Hey, this is Tyler. Are you looking to jump behind the DM screen but worry about being at a loss for words? What if a team of professional writers were sitting right there beside you during your prep and in-game, helping you describe your world and bring it to life? Describe is the next best thing. Spelled D-S-C-R-Y-B, Describe offers over 7,000 scenes of places, monsters, and spells, and the collection keeps growing. They're just like box text from your favorite adventure book, but designed to be read aloud in your own campaign. Start the adventure of a lifetime with the help of Describe's finely crafted flavor text. Visit Describe.com slash RPGBot. That's D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com slash RPGBot. And use the code RPGBOT at checkout to get 10% off of your first subscription payment. Today's episode on movement is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the world's largest provider of spoken word audio, including some of our favorite audiobooks like Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. To sign up for a free trial and to get a free audiobook, visit audibletrial.com RPGBOT. Welcome to the RPGBot.podcast. I'm Randall James, your roving rambler, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Hey, guys. All right, Tyler, what's happening? Well, today we're going to talk about movement in tabletop RPGs. If you've ever played a tabletop RPG, especially one that involves combat, chances are your character has probably been moving around at some point. Now, we've talked about travel on a previous episode, but today we're going to talk about the more, like, fine, foot-by-foot, I'm going to walk across this room and maybe high-five somebody. That kind of move. With my sword. I, I mean, I'm not going to judge how you do your high fives. Fair enough. I, it wasn't willing. In fact, that yeah, a high five, shoot to short. Yeah. It's just extreme high fives, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, mean, I think that's exactly right. So we, we talk a lot about, like, long distance movement in role play. Um, different systems have, like, cool ways. We talked about One Ring uh, has awesome ideas tied around travel, and I think that's really great. But this is going to be more mechanics heavy, right? We're going to talk about, like, literally in combat, uh, and I, I suppose maybe some of these same rules are going to apply to like chases. Won't focus on that. But the mechanics of moving around in combat, where they started, where they're at, uh, and yeah, what are some of the systems, the modern systems doing today? Absolutely. And combat is absolutely the the most important time to think about combat. <laughs> no, combat is the most important time to think about combat. It is. If you spend all your RP time thinking about combat, nothing's ever going to happen. <laughs> you're talking to a shopkeeper all of a sudden. You're like, all right, you know, I rolled a hit. What do you mean? You were just trying to like buy tobacco for the road. What's happening? <laughs> That's just called murder hoboing. That's what that is. <laughs> That's what, every conversation is just pre-combat. You try hard and believe in yourself. <laughs> well, now that we've established that my thoughts all begin and end with combat, what I meant to say was... Combat is the most important time to think about movement uh, because where you're standing in a fight is so important. Like if you've ever been in a fight in a video game, if you've ever been in a fight in a tabletop RPG, maybe you've been in a fight in real life. I don't know your life. I don't know. But where you're standing and where you're going can be very important. Many tabletop RPGs use a grid for combat, and that's something that, to the best of my knowledge, originated from Dungeons & Dragons, and a lot of RPGs have kept to that style of play because using a grid, sometimes it's a square grid, sometimes it's a hex grid, doesn't matter, but using a grid is considered eminently fair, uh, which just means everybody knows exactly where they are, Everybody knows exactly how far away everything is from everything else. And there's no, like, on my turn, the bad guy was five feet and one inch away. And on the bad guy's turn, the bad guy was four feet, nine inches away so they could hit me. None of that. Grid. Grid is good. But there's also theater of the mind, which, you know, trades some of that mechanical complexity, some of that additional tracking for speed. Or in that case, movement does sometimes get complicated. One of the more important things in games like Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder, where you have very specific party roles, you've got your fighter, rogue, cleric, wizard, you'll typically have kind of frontline and backline characters. So movement also becomes important in those games for separating bad guys from your friends who who are squishy and stand in the back. So 
just your fighter is up front between the monster and the wizard hiding in the back. I think the other thing here that's important is a lot of times if you have area of effect, right, I've got my cone or I've got a fireball, which is going to influence a sphere, getting everybody in a position where you can be impactful with that cone or you can be impactful with that sphere without blowing up your own party also becomes like super important and strategic. And so it isn't always just the wizard hiding, but it's wizards like, okay, I need line of sight and I would like to be as far away as possible while also having that line of sight. And I think it'd be great if you didn't stand in the middle of my fireball. You also have to keep in mind, especially when it comes to D&D, there is also a Z-axis to sort of keep in mind. Um, There's flight. There's also swimming, which is his own nature of its own can of worms. And, uh, you know, that whole situation, plus different classes have different styles of movement. Like monks are really good at dominating the battlefield through their massive movement speed, whereas uh, with a barbarian or a fighter kind of person you're going to be more about controlling other people's movements shoving them grappling them preventing them from moving away and there's a lot of ways that you can kind of use movement to your advantage both defensively and offensively and there's a lot to think about especially even even if you just have the grid it's just a lot to think about not even to mention theater of the mind stuff when you get into theater of the mind it's a whole other can of worms so yeah and for all the games that i've played that have been strictly theater of the mind i feel like you lose a lot of this because it's basically the dm thinking like yeah all right i'll allow it sure whatever and that's probably gonna work uh when in reality like a lot of the the scenarios you get to like i've had I've had DMs basically say, like, well, there's five enemies. I'm going to say you can get three of them. How? Like, how does that even make sense? <laughs> like, I'm grateful, but in, in the scenario we've described where somebody from my party is each engaged with one of them, I can get three of them, but nobody from my party? Great. No, that's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> makes total sense, bro. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's one of the reasons that the grid is considered eminently fair, because you can always just look at the grid and say, I have this pie plate fireball. I'm just going to like wave my hand around and figure out where can I put this thing above the grid to only hit enemies, not hit my friends. Or I don't know, maybe you get spicy and just like, eh, the tea feeling's got fire resistance. I'll fireball them. They're fine. <laughs> going to be great the other thing that i'll add to this you know i know everybody at home right they understand attacks of opportunity opportunity attacks when you have the grid and you can actually see the motion it's like you know you can only move 30 feet in order to get from point a to point b in those 30 feet available to you you are going to have to move in a place that's going to invoke an opportunity attack and that's going to change the way you think about your turn in any given system that you're playing that has attacks of opportunity so there, there's a lot of great reasons why having the grid is is really going to be, yeah, Im- important. Well, we've been dunking on uh, theater of the mind uh, for <laughs> so long that I feel necessary to say something in its defense. Uh, I think that theater of the mind can be useful, like you said before, in terms of speed, just like getting things through, especially in older editions of D&D where combat can take an eternity. I can speak to that from experience. But also it just allows a little bit more freedom in terms of for the DM, you're not limited by whatever map you can print out or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And it's sort of easier to visualize three dimensions in your mind than it is on the map, um, unless you have like those tier things. But on, <laughs> on most people use virtual tabletops and uh, it's not really easy to sort of do that on a virtual tabletop space. And it also is... Um, this may sound bad, but it can be useful. It's also good for fudging things for the DM. If the encounter is not going as well as you thought, you can sort of, if you're saying, oh, this person moves here, and they're like, oh, am I close enough to attack of opportunity him? He's just a bit out of your reach. Whereas if that was on a grid, they could see that. I'm not advocating for DMs to lie to their players. <laughs> I just want that stated for the record, but it can be useful in certain situations. I just want them to have the option to lie to their players and then make the choice not to every time, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We don't lie to our players here. What? And, and, and I feel like he said lying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we say this from time to time. You know, not every combat, not every session has to be the same. I think you might have certain combat sessions where you say, we're going to do this theater of the mind. Certain combat sessions, like if it's the BBG and you're in the lair, absolutely go find that map. Let's set up a grid. Let's have fun with it. You know, when when they choose to fight the shopkeeper they were trying to buy the tobacco from, 
I'm not pulling out a grid for this, people. Just let's <laughs> let's let's make it happen. Murder hobo, your way out. Don't forget to pick up a pipe too. Let's let's move on. Yeah, and that's the other thing that theater of the mind can be useful for is for unexpected combat encounters because it's a lot to ask of the DM to have a bunch of maps set up for any possible encounter that people would come across or even just like random encounters that you roll on a table which i don't really recommend using because they're always kind of boring (laughs) but um if you're going to use them i think theater of the mind is the way to go because if you have a map like i said combat can take a while and especially if you're using a grid and you're going to make the whole random encounter thing worse for yourself if it's taking a long time. So I'm going to send you back with some homework. Uh, we did an episode on random encounters not too long ago uh, oh, on, yeah, on how to make them fun and interesting. I was really happy with it. And I agree. We have done some dunking on theater of the mind, but I'm going to tease a little bit later in the episode. We're going to tell you how to do theater of the mind in a way that is just as fair as using a grid so you know stick around pretty fair but first i'm gonna drag us into the wayback machine and we're gonna go back to third edition D. oh man <laughs> oh god no who opened this portal i don't want to go in that's gonna be great the, the, the water's warm just get out 30d6 <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, 30d6. Are we building characters or throwing fireballs? Unclear. Yes, both. <laughs> One, then the other, then the other. Por que no los dos? <laughs> All right. So, so third edition D&D. Hugely influential in tabletop game design. Also the edition that I learned on. Uh, famously in, in 3X and Pathfinder First Edition, the... Your action economy was you had a move action, a standard action, and later introduced you got a swift action, which is basically today's bonus action if you're playing 5e. But your move action and your standard action were separate and distinct, sort of. You could also do what was called a full round action, which merged those two actions to do something bigger, like casting a more interesting spell, making multiple attacks with a weapon, things like that. But Movement was a discrete, like, I have a move action that I can use to run around or whatever. And the only alternative to that was you could take a five-foot step if you didn't move by some other mechanism on your turn. And having having the ability to trade in your movement to combine it with your standard action to do something more interesting was a very, very impactful decision on how 3X and Pathfinder First Edition, how those games work worked because taking a move action meant for martial characters most of the time you only get one attack on your turn when you could be potentially making like eight so moving was often very expensive which meant in 3x and pathfinder first edition for most characters you never moved more than five feet per turn spellcasters could usually get away with a lot more movement because most interesting spells fireball etc were standard action but it was rough on marshals okay i want to be clear that five-step foot, as long as I don't move by any other mechanism, could I still get the full round action by combining my movement? Okay, so I could combine my movement with the uh, regular action and move five feet. Correct. Okay. Yeah. All right, let me, ask, let me ask a different question. Could I use my standard action to, like, move more, perhaps in, like, a sprint or, I don't know, a dash? Um, yes. Well, well, yeah, yeah. That's a full <laughs> round. I believe it's a full round action to dash, though. You have two options. You can take two move actions, which is just you move your speed and then you move your speed again. Or you can take a full run, which is you can move up to four times your speed, but you can't turn. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, you have to go in a straight line. Yeah, you have to go in a straight line. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So yeah, nobody, nobody can turn at the same time as they're doing that. <laughs> I, I will say, I really like that idea of like using like your standard action as a move action to like do something like dashing. I hope that stays around. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the things that I've noticed about Pathfinder. Like ha- having originally come from Five E and now playing Pathfinder, is that. Uh, it's sort of like Pathfinder has something, it has a mechanic that'll do better than 5e, but also worse. 
if that makes any sense. So like with the run action, you can move four times your speed as opposed to in 5e, you can only move twice your speed when you take a dash action. But it comes with the caveat that um, you have to go in a straight line, which is very funny. I do like I do kind of like that. I don't really have a problem with that. I will say, though, that you did miss two actions, uh, immediate action and a free action. Ah, yes. Well, uh, those weren't directly related to movement, so I skipped over them. But you're right. Immediate actions are basically 5e or Pathfinder 2nd Edition's reaction, but then you don't get a swift action on your turn, and then free actions are they're just that they're free yeah and immediate actions were different than attacks of opportunity like you could have multiple (laughs) attacks of opportunity um attacks of opportunity weren't bound to your reaction or immediate action correct and that too was very impactful on how movement worked in those editions Mm -hmm. very commonly frontline martial characters would take a feat called combat reflexes that let you take additional attacks of opportunity Um, if you're playing pf1 you may have read our area control defender handbook which basically goes into like how do i have as much reach as possible and as many attacks of opportunity as possible so that when people try to walk up to me i can beat them several times before they get to me and then hopefully no one ever gets close enough to give you a high five yeah the opportunity cost of being my friend is really high (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh i want to say that i think my friend matt who's running my pathfinder game may have read that because he told me about a character that was essentially just i'm gonna plant myself here Mm -hmm. and nobody can go past me perfect (laughs) that is exactly what those characters should do he had an insane reach and it was just yeah (laughs) so just to be clear 3.x and pf1 it sounds like they had pretty similar basically the same movement rules 100 percent the same yes okay so this was something pf1 didn't really branch off of and try to do anything different correct Um, which is funny because i think you know in a moment we're going to talk about 5e and pf2 and i feel like they did go different directions but i could see how they're each inspired by what you're describing well as long as we're on pathfinder and movement i have a bit of a rant about movement and pathfinder specifically when it comes to diagonal movement i don't know if you guys know about this but in order to to move diagonally in pathfinder you have to go it's like two yeah it's like it's like your terrain yeah (laughs) it's like twice your movement to go one square and i get why they did that and this is a major is it wait 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 is it or is it one and a half it's one and a half Uh, every second square costs two squares of movement Okay, yeah. what's the square root of two? Oh God, one point <laughs> two something. I, I think it's one point four one. Uh, oh. People at home, we have calculators. We're not going to go to them, but I'll we'll say put it in the show notes. Yeah, it, good. Square root of two equals. We're doing it. <laughs> Hopefully, everybody knows how to interpret a square root symbol. It's going to be wonderful. But uh, uh, everybody, everybody at home, I know you. You know what it means. What I'm worried about. Um, Spotify and Apple, wonderful podcast uh, solutions. I think everybody should be using them at home. They're great. I don't know if they know what a square root symbol is. Let's see how it goes. Anyway, um, <laughs> that no, was an awfully transition. Yeah, one one point five is awfully close to one point four. So I actually understand why you would say if I'm going to move on a diagonal, I'm going to call it one point five. Yeah, yeah, it it's uh, an infuriating system, and this is the thing that <laughs> Pathfinder. Uh, likes to do which is um something that i've noticed that they that pathfinder was really obsessed with was uh realistic fidelity which is basically like we want to try to emulate how it would really go in a combat which i get it but it's kind of a losing battle because this is all just basically anime. I mean, <laughs> it, and it adds nothing to the experience of people having to do 1.5 movement just to move in a diagonal. And I get that. I think that the other complaint, the reason why they did it that way was because you can conceivably move further using just diagonals, but nobody does that unless, you know, they're a jerk um, and they're trying to game the system. So I feel like sometimes you can sacrifice realistic fidelity for the sake of gameplay because it is in my time that I encountered diagonal movement, I hated it. And we eventually decided to get rid of it because it was a terrible 
terrible way to do movement. Yeah, that's reasonable. It, it doesn't add a whole lot to the game, which is why 5e doesn't do it anymore. Yeah. The, the one and a half rule, I believe, is included as a an optional variant in the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, but I've never heard of anyone using it. Because, like, yeah. sure, mathematically it feels weird that diagonals take just as much movement, but it, yeah, it really doesn't change the game. Yeah, um, I think we should be multiplying by 1.41, but that's just... Yeah. <laughs> so I think the the conclusion to take from this is diagonal movement is for math nerds and nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a math nerd, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I I I learned to suffer the one and a half rule at ten years old. So it's oh, yeah, I'm second so nature sorry. to me. It's fine. You get used to it, or you don't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So he, he, he was strangely really good at decimals and nobody understood why, but <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask a hypothetical question. I'm going to ask a hypothetical question that I frequently ask after talking about 3.x and Pathfinder first edition. Why am I telling you this? Uh, <laughs> uh, as we do frequently on, on episodes where we dig in mechanics, uh, the context of 3.x and Pathfinder First Edition is very informative for other current tabletop RPGs. So many RPGs now have kind of a split action system similar to 3.x. So we've talked about the Alien RPG recently. When you're in combat, you have a fast action and a complex action, which is basically a move action and a standard action. The Marvel multiverse RPG, the playtest is out currently. You have an action and you have a movement action again, borrowed straight from 3.x. Like there are a lot of games that do that. Fantasy flight. Star Wars has a two action system. It's called your maneuver and your action. And honestly, of every game I've seen that tries to do this, that is the best name scheme I've seen. Uh, yeah, it's pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, so like that, conceptual root in third edition has made its way into a lot of other tabletop rpgs now not everything uses like that two action system pathfinder second edition famously famously has a three action system mork borg doesn't care about movement at all yeah with the secret for mork borg uh, you move and then you die <laughs> accurate or you stand yeah. still and then you die no, but, but in all seriousness, there's actually no specification for movement in combat in the game. Uh, we've also talked about uh, One Ring 2nd Edition uh, recently. One Ring has this idea of, like, stance. So you might be, you know, kind of forward, middle, or or distance, ranged? I forget what it's calling. Uh, Essentially, like, three ranges of stance, though. And that mm-hmm. impacts combat, but there's no movement. Um, the, the only thing you might do is go from being, like, in the middle to the front, and there's, there is a cost to that. But there's no idea of, like, I'm going to move on a grid, for instance. There's no theater of the mind of, like, well, where were you? Where were, you, where were they? It's literally JRPG. Exactly. Uh, yeah. One ring, the stances, if you want to go from one of the melee stances to a ranged stance, you have to make a successful attack. That's it. Like, that. that is the entirety of movement and combat in one ring. So let's look at fantasy flight star wars because i think there's some really interesting concepts here um, and we're going to touch on alien a little bit because there's a lot of overlap in how this works so we mentioned a minute ago how fantasy flight has the two action system where you have your maneuver and your action now fantasy flight star wars wasn't built to use a grid because if, if you watch star wars like combat's very fluid people are running around people are ducking behind things there's lightsabers there's flips obi-wan jumps off of a balcony like uh, crazy stuff so instead of using like a precise rigid grid which they've done in like the d20 star wars rpg uh fantasy flight star wars uses a system of range bands there are four bands engaged short medium long extreme engaged is essentially melee combat uh you get up really close to each other somebody gets down on one knee pulls out a lightsaber everyone's very confused wait wait i don't i don't think that's right buddy i think it's the other thing i think it's the (laughs) high-fiving with the lightsabers so so the range bands are are intentionally kind of ambiguous but the important part is you proceed through those range bands linearly so engage is melee combat short is probably like you're in a small room uh medium is something like you're in a large room long is like 
somebody's way over there and extreme is like i think i see that guy off in the distance way over there let me get binoculars so through po what do you see with your robot eyes (laughs) something about r2d2 so the in the two action system you can spend your maneuver to move between range bands so you could go from short to engage or engage to short or something like that and there's no opportunity attacks in fantasy flight star wars so if you're in melee and you don't want to be you can just run as elegant as the system sounds there are some kind of minor frustrations uh namely if there's more than two people in combat range bands get really confusing because let's say let's say i'm at medium range from two stormtroopers and one of those stormtroopers runs off to the left somewhere what range band is that is that stormtrooper now let's say uh i have two friends who are boxing with those stormtroopers what range band is everyone to everyone else and like it it immediately starts getting very confusing once you start adding people but the very recent alien rpg came along and saved us with a very very similar uh, implementation of movement and introduced these things called zones now zones are vague they're intentionally vague and basically if you just took like take a map of a building and take each room and kind of circle it and say like ah this is a zone that's it and every zone you have to go through to reach somebody is one range band that's it problem solved and then some idea of like being engaged as well yeah uh so you can be in the same zone with somebody else and be in short range but once you get into melee combat with them you're engaged so like let's say uh i'm in a 10 by 10 room me and uh, Xenomorph Boxer, uh, we are in opposite corners, um, and we are staring at each other from short range. One of us d- decides that we want to get in a fight, so I pull out my lightsaber. The Xenomorph puts on its boxing gloves. We move into engaged range. Um, and <laughs> yeah, like, So in this scenario, Jedi exist in the Aliens universe. Absolutely. Does Disney own Alien yet? <laughs> no, but they will eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, are, are we sure? Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, wait. Let me see. I got to look this up. Keep talking. <laughs> Isn't it like Fox 21st Century is, is Alien? Oh, I thought, okay. I thought they bought Fox. They might have. No, because, yeah, they acquired the X-Men. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Ma- Magneto see. the Jedi. Oh my god, they do own aliens. <laughs> <laughs> That's the crossover um, we need. Um, <laughs> oh man. Except for, uh, like, you, you know, you, you chop off the boxing gloves with your lightsaber, and then like caustic acid sprays everywhere, and everybody's having a bad time now. <laughs> well, then you want to stop being an engaged range. Yeah. Jedi Master, there's a there's a hole in your spaceboat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so movement am i right movement yeah right. yeah let's yeah yeah totally okay so the reason that range bands are a thing in in some rpgs star wars alien um because those are rpgs where you are frequently both in range to punch things and also shooting at things because alien has guns star wars has blasters alien has aliens star wars has aliens so you need to know how far away you are from things so that you can shoot them or potentially whack them with your lightsaber but you don't need to know exactly how far because exactly how far you you've, exactly how far doesn't actually matter this actually sounds similar to uh vampire actually they have similar sort of range bands but it's not as like strict it's like it's and it's tied to weapons and certain skills so like you have melee short uh i believe short range mid range long range and um like that's that's kind of it like you can i think it's like you said i can't remember exactly the movement but like you can move from one range band to the next on your turn so it's kind of similar to star wars but i do like that system it allows more freeform sort of flexibility but i think you're right that it would cause some confusion especially if you're using a grid would you say that it uh you know, improves the ability to execute theater of the mind. Yes, I would actually. I see what you did there. I see how it came full circle. But wait, wait. Hang on, people. Hang on. Uh, There's more. Well, I need to ask in a question. Um, I'm pretty sure nobody at home listening knows how movement works 
in fifth edition. Not a single person. Not a single no. person has ever opened that book. Nope. I, I I don't know why they're listening to this podcast, son. I think it's just <laughs> curiosity. Yeah. People, you know, people uh don't use VTTs. They don't, don't lay down grids on their tables at home when their friends come over. Never. Uh, and I, I think we should talk about it for a second. All Agreed. Right. <laughs> so if you are familiar with fifth edition, or if you're not, uh <laughs> movement you, you on probably your are. turn is a pool so you have a number of feet of movement based on your speed and you can go that distance like the, it gets a little spicy if you have multiple movement speeds but just go it's in the player's handbook spelled out very clearly so i'm a human i have a 30 foot movement speed allegedly and you can pretty much only use your movement for moving around on the grid. Uh, there are a couple other minor things like standing up from prone, mounting a creature, but it, generally it's just I move around. Um, unlike 3.x and Pathfinder First Edition, you can't trade your movement for more stuff to do on your turn. So you couldn't be like, I would like to make more attacks. I'm going to stand still. Now, there are some things that will, like, reduce your movement to zero like the rogue has an optional class feature called steady aim that says uh you get advantage on your next attack but you can't move this turn like there's things like that but you're not you're not really spending your movement you're kind of sacrificing it which i guess is a difference it's the same like, as spending yeah sacrificing yeah. is absolutely yeah it's a distinction without a difference yeah <laughs> um, you can jump as part of your movement which uh in some games like jumping is a specific separate action that you have to do so fifth edition's just the basic movement is actually very flexible and generous because it doesn't have some opportunity costs that you're giving up in the vast majority of situations so like if i am standing in a room full of angry goblins and i want to go uh high five goblins with a sword then <laughs> then i can use my movement and walk between the goblins successively bapping them but like there's nothing else i can do with the movement really and that's perfectly fine because the designers wanted movement to be inexpensive in fifth edition in three five in pf1 uh, movement was very expensive which meant the characters who needed it most martial characters generally just couldn't move around on their turns yeah, and I think it makes combat a bit more dynamic in 5th edition because you can have people constantly moving around the board. Some guy will flee, fling a, fling a spell at you and keep running. Whereas in Pathfinder, it would mostly just evolve... In the combats I played, it mostly just evolves into like a single small part of the board where everybody's just hitting each other. And that's just, yeah. that's just kind of how it went because movement <laughs> was costly. Exactly. Typically, you're talking about Pathfinder One. Pathfinder One. I'm not talking yeah. about. We're, we'll talk about Pathfinder Two later, but Pathfinder <laughs> One is what I'm referring to. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. Go. No, go ahead. No. Okay. So I just wanted to make the comment. Like you were talking about jumping a second ago. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that Three X and Pathfinder One, right? You had this idea that you could uh, run, but you had to go in the same direction yeah. because logic says that your momentum carries you in the same direction. Yeah. Realistic. Fidelity. Yeah. In 5e, you can get a running start going north to then use the rest of your movement speed to jump straight west or south for that matter. And that's perfectly legal and within the rules. And I really like that. Like, hey, I'm going to get some momentum going this direction because why not? But I actually want to be over there. Ha ha. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Or you could run full speed in a circle if you wanted to. Um, cause, the, cause 5e just embraces like, you know what? Anime rules. This works. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> yes. Hey, wait, give me a second. What did you roll? Uh, I'm glad you asked, buddy. I just rolled my hollow dice of divine retribution. Easy roller dice. Did you hear how beautiful those sounded? Oh, those sounded great. We've been playing a lot of online lately. What with you being literally a thousand miles away. This is very true. It is almost literally a thousand. Yeah. I want to actually, I want to, I want to get your preference right here. Okay. So I'm going to roll my hollow dice of divine retribution from easy roller dice. And then I'm going to roll some other dice from the other dice store. Cool. 
I'm sorry, are you rolling gravel? What is happening? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I like my jingle jangle probability polyhedrals. Now, if I wanted to go and get myself some jingle jangle probability polyhedrals, where would I find those? I'm sure glad you asked. I think the easiest way to find them is go to rpgbot.net slash easyrollerdice. From there, we'll have links take you to the Easy Roller Dice store, particular call out these fine dice. So we, we've we talked about opportunity attacks a little bit previously, and opportunity attacks in 5th edition are still a thing, uh, just like they were in 3X and BF1. And opportunity attacks are the thing that prevents movement from becoming a problem. So we talked about earlier, like, I, w- I want to keep the monsters over there, my fighter in between me and the monster, and of course I am the wizard. Your, your fighters, your football linemen protecting the quarterback from the other team to use a sports metaphor to definitely the right audience for that. Perfectly acceptable audience. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so opportunity. Like the, the wizard is the most important player in your mind. And I really uh, feel like that's on brand. Um, so let's keep going. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Look, I, I just cast psychic scream and everything in this room that I don't like is now permanently stun locked. The other players yeah. can go take a nap. Yep. Wizards are broken. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so opportunity attacks. Uh, people who look at 5th edition trying to reconcile it with real world combat frequently look at opportunity attacks as like, this is absurd. That's not how fights work. And I agree with you. Generally in a fight, if somebody just randomly breaks off and runs straight away from you, you're not going to get a free chance to punch them in the face. But this is a game. So we've traded some reality for some gameplay. So opportunity attacks prevent enemies from just freely walking past each other in order to get to the soft, squishy people at the back. Because if you could just walk straight to the soft, squishy people at the back, then the motivation is all of the players form like a a turtle shell around the wizard to protect them from all of the scary things outside. I I do think actually there's a little bit of realism in this, right? Like if I lay off the sweet clothesline and you sprint straight into it because you didn't (laughs) declare your intention to duck the clothesline, I'm totally going to take you out. (laughs) Well, that's what disengage is for. I think uh, the argument that opportunity attacks don't make uh, sense realistically, I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I think that um, if you, maybe not running away from someone, but if you're running past someone, uh, you're usually focused on your destination and not the person who's here, which does leave you classically open for an attack, um, which is why people are always like, you know, protect your flanks and stuff like that. Uh, If you consciously make the decision to sort of block that person, which is what disengage would be, then it costs you, you're not moving as fast. So I feel like there is some realism, even if it's not like 100% realism. Like you said, we have to sacrifice some realism for the sake of balance and fun, which is the mistake that Pathfinder made. <laughs> I, th- I think the answer is we need to have an RPGbot.melee. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. A uh, hundred knights in chainmail enter, like three leaf. Yeah, we we got to test this in real life. We got to don some armor. We got to draw up some five squares, five foot squares (laughs) and see if it's realistic. And if I walk past one of you guys, if you could take a swing at me. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be laying on my back, staring at the sky going, I disengaged. (laughs) (laughs) The weirdest LARP. (laughs) Incredible. A hundred percent on board for this. It's like a night's tale, except for none of us are that good looking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's fine. I can, I can be the weird ginger looking squire. He was, (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, what is his name? Cause I love him. He's the best. Uh, Oh, was it, uh, was it the was it the poet guy or was it the squire? I, I can't remember. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. We're getting off topic. <laughs> we sure are. That's fine. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> All right. So let's jump to Pathfinder Second Edition. Alan so Tudyk. Was it Alan Tudyk? I thought. Yeah, Alan Tudyk. Oh, was yeah, the, Alan uh, Tudyk was the squire. That's right. Oh, man. Yeah. Who got so angry at the poet? Okay. Anyway, um, it's important because he's a fantastic actor, and I wish he was in more movies. Yeah. In fact, he's been doing a lot lately. So yeah. more <laughs> movies. I don't care. The D and D movies in it. I want Alan Tidd again. It somehow. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> All right. This is Pathfinder now the Alan Tudyk fan hour. This is what this is now. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So Pathfinder 2. So we've talked about Pathfinder 1st Edition, where movement is very costly. So costly that it's a huge problem, and all combat turns into five-foot square shuffling and shin-kicking. <laughs> and then we... <laughs> And then we've talked about 5th edition, where movement is mostly very freeform, so you can run circles around, and we've used this term in previous episodes, you can run circles inside your enemy's safety donut, quote-unquote, without problem. And and the important part there, you can even break up your your attacks. If you have multiple attacks, you could move 5 feet, attack, move 5 feet, attack, move 5 feet, attack. You might be invoking opportunity to attack every time you move, but you're absolutely allowed to do that within the rules of 5e. Yes. Yeah, godsend. Freaking godsend. <laughs> yeah, famously another thing you couldn't do in 3X. Uh, <laughs> so Pathfinder 2nd Edition kind of finds a middle ground between 5th Edition and 3X. So movement is still costly. On your turn, you have three actions that you can spend for various things. Like some things cost more than one action, and not the point, but... You can take a step, which is you move one square, no no reactions are provoked, and that's basically the same thing as 3x's five-foot step. Or for that same action cost, you can take a stride, which is like 5e's, just your movement. Like, you move your speed, and then you're done. Now, PF2 doesn't let you break up attacks during your movement, generally. Like, there are some very specific features that let you do that, but generally a character can't say, I spend an action to move 30 feet, and in the middle of that, I'm going to spend the rest of my actions to hit somebody and then move away. Like, you can't you can't do that. You have to finish what you're doing, do something else, do something else. That cost in the action economy makes movement extremely valuable. Uh, positioning yourself in Pathfinder 2 is very important. Flanking is a default rule in both 3X and Pathfinder 2nd Edition, so... Getting into position to flank enemies or getting out of a position where you're being flanked is huge. Where this can get a little complicated and messy is attacks of opportunities work very differently in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. For one thing, not everyone gets them. In fact, most things don't. The things that do are big, scary melee monsters that you would expect. Like, yeah, this thing knows what it's doing in a fight. Like, your your troll, your fighter. Like, the those... Characters, creatures will frequently have a reaction that lets them attack you when you move or take an interact action. And and so being a person like the couple times that I played PF2 who hadn't looked at monsters, wasn't familiar with who would and who wouldn't have attacks of opportunity. I was aware that not all creatures would, but constantly the, the other players and I were basically like, okay, I really want to get away from this creature but I'm not going to because I'm afraid that it's going to have an attack of opportunity and I don't want to risk that. Um, So I really, you know, if you have a group of players who, you know, basically haven't read through all the monsters and don't know what will and won't, haven't memorized that, I think it's a fun dynamic of like, I'm going to risk getting away from this thing with the potential that it's going to hit me in the face on the way. That is interesting. So I don't actually know that much about PF2 because I haven't had an opportunity to play it yet, but I do... I do kind of like that. It adds a lot more valuable, a lot more value to martial classes. Um, And it sort of addresses the whole, you know, realism issue where people are like, you know, they wouldn't realistically hit that. But someone who was trained in fighting would know how to do that. But your basic wizard who just has a stick and a prayer He's not going to be like, you guys run away from me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's not, that's not going to work. But I do like that. And, you know, the problem with a lot of, you know, D&D games is that while the martial fighters are valuable, at least in the beginning, by the time of the late game, they are severely outclassed by the casters. Um, and this sort of gives them more value for like the whole game because they're the ones that can tie down creatures and prevent them from moving which so like if if a guy is leaving you can't just have your wizard stand next to him and be like i got this guys you have to have the fighter there which i that's cool i like that actually i think it'd be a lot more fun game if we let the wizard have an uh an attack of opportunity um because the wizard's not going to hit. <laughs> it's like, go, go ahead. Hey, buddy, I'm going to go over there. Go one swing. I'll give you one swing. Oh, oh, you couldn't do it. All right, I'm out of here. Well, you you are forgetting. You are forgetting uh, a war master feat. 
which allows wizards to opportunity oh, well, attack with a spell with a more spell caster or caster yeah <laughs> i know words um <laughs> it's yeah, literally caster. one letter or <laughs> <Yeah>. caster <laughs> excuse me um <laughs> i've lost my DD cred um but yeah they uh, it, of all the feats that I recommend people get if you're a caster, that is like number one because it does allow you to not just the, you know, opportunity attack uh, with spells, but, you know, advantage on concentration checks is pretty good. Yeah, that's fair. You taunt the wizard. It's not effective. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so we've talked a bit, we've talked about hit about a bunch of additions. Uh, Let's go back to theater of the mind. Uh, A lot of people listening to this podcast are playing primarily fifth edition or PF2 these days. So let's talk about doing theater of the mind in those two games. Mm -hmm. Calling back to early in the episode, fantasy flight, star Wars and the alien RPG both use this concept of a range band. So again, to refresh or to recap engaged, short, medium, long, extreme and it sounds like vampire the masquerade uses something similar but i haven't read that one it's on my it's on my pile of books i promise it's a good one (laughs) you can use those range bands in fifth edition now the missing piece in fantasy flight star wars implementation of the range bands is that concept of zones that the alien rpg introduces so you can look at your dungeon map and say here are my zones Players like creatures can move freely between these zones using their entire movement to go between one zone. Or like maybe if they're incredibly fast, they can move between two zones. You'll kind of have to fudge the numbers. It's it's intentionally fuzzy because you're trading some of that crunchy simulation math stuff for ease of play. Now, I I personally am very, very comfortable on a grid. So like grid comes out rulers come out like everyone's counting squares i'm right there i'm ready to go i'm like i'm in it but uh zones are zones are unfamiliar to me so this is like this would take me personally a little adaptation but for people who don't like to do all that math counting squares like using theater of the mind with these zones can be very helpful so i want to be clear so what you're suggesting is that in 5e or pathfinder 2 we might adopt this idea of zones where i might be engaged with in melee with a particular uh character creature i might be in the same zone with a character creature or i might be two zones three zones and then we could basically just map kind of all of our ranged effects, we can map everything to saying like, ah, you know, your your fireball goes so many feet, we're going to call that a up to two zones away. Yeah, exactly. Is that- that's, uh, that's not a bad idea. And uh, it, you could adapt it pretty easily with 5e. So engaged could be anyone who's within, like, say, five feet of you. Exactly. Um, short could be anyone who's, like, between fi- uh, uh, like 10 and, like, uh, we'll say 15 feet, like half your 30 foot movement and then uh what's past that i forget sorry medium medium okay so medium would be within your 30 foot range that you could probably easily get to and then long would be within your dash and extreme is past that yeah absolutely let's see so you you don't even have to measure it using feet like that again um as soon as you bring the feet calculations into it you're going back towards the grid uh yeah let's use a an example so if you've seen the lord of the rings films the fight in the mines of moria where they fight the cave troll like i i use that i use that as an example in a lot of dungeon fantasy discussions because it is so effective picture the room in your heads there's one great big door you come in through the door there's uh the like the sarcophagus right in the middle and then there's kind of like a raised walkway along the back edge of the room so that effectively gives you three zones you have like the central floor of the room the entrance right by the door and then that raised floor at the back so you could break that up into three zones and any creature could use its their movement to move between one of those zones so you can only move into an adjacent zone. If you want to take a dash, you can move one more zone further. Um, and that's that's essentially the same thing how it works in Fantasy Flight Star Wars and Alien RPG. You use your maneuver or your uh, fast action in Alien to move one zone. That handles all your positioning. If someone wants to get into melee with another creature within their zone, um, I'd say 
I'd say you can move from one zone into melee with a creature in another zone, zone or just into or out of melee um, using your movement. But that's where we start hitting the 5e specific edge cases because we have a couple of things we have to worry about. Opportunity attacks and reach. So opportunity attacks are specifically there to prevent creatures from freely just running out of melee to go do something else. It's very simple. Just if a creature moves out of engaged opportunity attack, that's it. Dead simple, barely even a change. Uh, You can still take the disengage action to negate that normally, so a creature could disengage and then move off to a different zone if they wanted to. And I'm sure this will take some fine-tuning, and if you try this Try this in your games, uh, talk to your players, you know, work it out, write things down, come to an agreement, because we are very much spitballing this. Yeah. (laughs) And the the other edge case is reach. So there are pull arms. Star Wars famously doesn't have a whole lot of spears. Uh, Neither does the alien RPG, but D&D does. So my suggestion is if a creature has more reach than the creature they are attacking, uh, if they're within short range, you can attack them. So let's say um, I am over here with my glaive, which has reach. Uh, Goblin is over here at short range. So we're in the same zone. Um, And the goblin has a, a, a fork. I don't know. So I take my glaive, and I have reach, so I can attack the goblin, but the goblin needs to move into the engaged range band with me to attack me. You might also say that because I have more reach, if the goblin moves out of the zone, I would get an opportunity attack. But once that goblin moves into engaged with me, um, I would still take an opportunity attack if I try to move away. So that kind of simulates reach, and it's like as the reach numbers go up, you know, things might have 15 versus 10 feet. And like, it's essentially the same thing. And and so in the description that you give, right, I'm on one raised walkway. There's another raised walkway on the other side of the room. So uh, if I'm doing a ranged attack, going into the central floor might mean that it's essentially like a, a short range attack, or maybe it's medium range because it's a separate zone. Um, going to the walkway on the other side is one additional zone further away. And so at that point, I might have to use you know, something that has a long range attack. And at this point, I think you probably have to sit down, kind of look at what skills are available, what folks have, and make a call about, uh, you know, I'm going to map everything from like 60 feet to 90 feet and just call that long range. And if 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 you had 60 feet, 90 feet on the original spell, I'm going to say you can go two zones and we're fantastic. And for a lot of these things, if you want to go one or two additional zones, uh, you can do it, but you're going to roll a disadvantage. So it won't always be perfectly fair but I think it's probably a lot better of a solution than saying like, uh, I don't know, like you can get you, you can get three guys if you want to go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that the issue with this system does come into effect with with spells. I do think that um, you're just going to have to kind of eyeball it. But you, you mentioned like 60 feet is long range, you know, 30 feet is short range. But there are some spells that are 120 foot. So if that's like, if 60 feet is long range, 120 feet is extreme. That makes extreme, extremely powerful. Sorry for the, the <laughs> pun. But, um, uh, I, which I don't know if you want or not, but um, I do think the system has potential though, especially when it comes to theater of the mind, because it is difficult to keep track of everything. So if you just have it in your mind, like, okay, this person's in this zone, these people are in this zone, you can sort of keep track of it better. So there, there's one last thing now that you bring up spells that you have to worry about using the system because area effects are a thing. All of my friends are in, a, in the next zone over, and there's a bunch of creatures in that zone. Nobody's engaged, whatever. Uh, and I have this nice fireball that I want to drop into that zone and cause some problems. How do we handle that? Well, fortunately, the Dungeon Master's Guide has an answer to this one. Uh, there's there's a table on adjudicating area effects. It's very simple. Just what is the shape? What is the size? Here's how many creatures you hit. Done. Oh. Like, don't, don't argue with it. Don't fight with it. Pretend that it makes sense that you can get more than two creatures with a line, no matter how long it is. Like... Uh, (laughs) just yeah just use the table it works great it'll solve your problem the extra math doesn't add anything to the theater of the mind combat Uh, you might need to work some stuff out like uh, if you say 
you want to hit a creature that is engaged with one of your allies, you might just have to say, yeah, if you drop a fireball on creatures that are engaged with each other, everyone that's engaged is going to be one of those creatures that gets hit, and you're just going to have to deal with that. But work it out with your players. Just come up with an answer and just stick to it, because as long as the ruling is consistent, it's always fair. Now, with that solved, let's real quick talk about how this would work in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. It doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Quest complete. On to the next. Yes. Um, Pathfinder 2nd Edition's movement is baked very hard into how combat works. uh, And it, it is a very, very important part of how combat is balanced. So... Maybe somebody way smarter than me has figured out how to do theater of the mind combat in PF2, but uh, at the very least, the system that we've pitched tonight would not work. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) but if you're playing Pathfinder 2nd Edition, one of the best things about it is the, the specific crunchy tactical satisfying combat like combat and pathfinder second edition feels so good it feels so good but if you take away the grid it gets way weird yeah uh, that's kind of always been the appeal of pathfinder it appeals to the strategist and tactician in us <laughs> definitely all right i think we did it I, I think that was solid all right so we do have a question of the week this week our question of the week this week comes to us from scoeys via discord question Mad classes are almost always weaker than sad ones. Uh, and the main exception, the paladin, is so OP that even a mediocre paladin is better than the best monk. Oof. <laughs> um, so, actually, I, I want to pa- <laughs> I, I pause for a second. We're not done with the question. We've talked about mad, sad, and I think uh, before, but let's call it out because I think it helps the question make sense. So, mad is the idea of uh, multiple ability score dependence or multiple ability dependence. Sad is single ability dependence. Uh, 5e, most of the classes are famously sad. Uh, they're not mad, they're sad. And and we'll get into that in a second. Okay, so Scoeys via Discord. Question. Mad classes are almost always weaker than sad ones, and the main exception, the paladin, is so OP that even a mediocre paladin is better than the best monk. So hypothetically, would it be better for every class to be sad or for every class to be mad? I personally wish 5e were designed for the latter, where having generally average stats was optimal and capping a stat came at a great cost. And so the implied question is basically, what do we think? Uh, and so, Tyler, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, all right, sure. Okay. Um, personally, I think more classes should be mad. Like, you should get some benefit from having high stats in other ability scores. So, like, wizards, all you need is intelligence. Like, sure, dexterity gives you AC, constitution gives you hit points, and you get saves from everything, but your wizard. All you need is intelligence. If you need more AC, cast Mage Armor. If you need more hit points, cast False Life. Like, you you got it. All you need is the intelligence to back up the spells. Uh, If there was a more significant benefit to other ability scores, we would see more diversity in builds and more interesting characters. Like, if you want to play an enchanter who's also really charming and just uses their spells to back up being charming, like, there's very little benefit to doing so like sure you get uh you could put 14 in charisma and take percent in proficiency and persuasion which you have to get from your background because it's not even a skill option for the wizard so you have to get it from your background or from your race like fifth edition very much locks people into those ability score breakdowns i don't i don't know i think uh i think i disagree a little bit i think that um especially in 5e Every class does rely on at least one or even two other ability scores, and that's because dexterity is a very favorited skill. Like, it is it is useful for everything. If you tank your dexterity, you're going to have a rough time, even with mage armor. Mage armor is dependent on your dexterity as well. And uh, constitution is another thing that you also have to focus on, especially if you're a caster. Because uh, if you're a caster and you have low hit points... You can't really cast anything if you're dead. Um, and also, it, constitution is tied to your concentration of, uh, concentration effects. Now, I do think that where MAD really come, uh, becomes a problem 
is when it when we're talking about multi-classing like when you're multi-classing with stuff that's not so not not in god's name is supposed to be multi-class i do think 5e struggles with that because you know i should just be able to make like a monk barbarian but that is an awful way to build a character because suddenly i have to now focus on uh strength if i'm going well no i would probably ignore strength but dexterity Although you need kind of need strength for because I think it's tied to your rage. I don't play a lot of barbarians. Constitution <laughs> uh, for your AC, but now you also have to do wisdom for your monk AC. It's a whole mess. Um, so it's it's probably kind of the problem when you're dealing with bounded accuracy. And I think Pathfinder. This is one of the things that Pathfinder was better at was you could make a really mad class, and the way you, and you could still make it super overpowered through the use of all the freaking feats and. <laughs> items and other bull that you can sort of put on your character and make a really overpowered build even if they are pretty stat heavy so of course even with all that most things lose to a single class wizard yep that is true (laughs) i mean wizards are just op Uh, although i will say in 5e clerics give them a run for their money clerics finally solo everything in the game Um, so if, if you're looking for a system that does this a little better, Pathfinder 2nd Edition is right there. <laughs> Pathfinder 2nd Edition is really, really good about letting you choose how to do your ability scores. And because of the way increasing ability scores work, you are not punished for diversifying quite the way you are in 5th Edition. So like wizards are still sad. All you need is intelligence. So you can just dump all of your resources into intelligence, but uh, you get... You get to increase four scores by plus two at first, fifth, tenth, fifteenth, and twentieth level. You can't put all four of those into intelligence. It's only one score, so you have to improve other things, which makes it very easy to play classes that have like diverse capabilities. A lot of people build high charisma barbarians and build around the intimidate skill. Rangers can be built with high intelligence or high wisdom to play them as a support class. Like... PF2 does a really, really good job of offering diverse options there based on how you want to do your ability scores. So, it, yeah, it's if you look at 5th edition and say sad shouldn't be a thing, PF2, it's right there. Real good. Yeah, I think my fear for if, if you try to make more classes have an opportunity to be mad in 5e, my fear would be that you would basically just wind up with like subclass archetypes where it's you know, oh, well, I've got my barbarian who somehow also has a dexterity dependency. So do I go down the dexterity path or do I go down the strength path? And then once I max out strength, I'll start boosting up dexterity and maybe taking like some of the skill tree that, that's coming on that side. In other words, like, for, for every class, you would basically wind up with this branching pattern of like, okay, well, I, I focused on dex, so I take these things or I focus on strength, so I take these things. And then you'll have some people who try to build that balanced character and get a little bit out of both. My suspicion in the way the rule set is built is that you would wind up with a character who's actually just bad at everything. <laughs> you know, you'd have a barbarian in your class and they'd be like, oh, you know, I focused on strength and I'm beating the hell out of everything. And this person is like, well, it took a little bit of everything. So, like, I almost dodged that, but it still hit me. And then I almost hit that guy really hard, but it wasn't that hard. Yeah, I think that is the problem uh, about, um, you know, you know, I think people overreact when they say that sad is overpowered. I think in some cases it makes sense someone who's dedicated their lives to being a wizard and that's the only thing they do they're going to be a master wizard rather than someone who just kind of dabbled in it (laughs) because if you if you if you make a, a character that's just good at everything that's a boring character i've constantly encouraged people and i do this with my own characters to dump a stat have a dump stat even if like you roll like we usually roll for stats in my games but even if I roll really well on all of my stats, I will take one stat and I'll be like, that's a five now. And I want to see what I I can do with that. It's usually charisma. I'd like to make characters that put their foots in their mouth because that's what I do. (laughs) Especially my warlock, just like, uh, (laughs) don't do that as a warlock. That would be a horrible character. How do do, do I RP somebody who's really good at spells with a patron, but also really terrible with everybody else? Yeah. And, And I think that's wonderful. As long as you can commit to actually doing that RP, 
like the, you know, even like the strength of the wizard, like I've got a, I've got a four strength somehow. So like somebody hands a thick book, like, okay, the wizard copies one too many spells into the spell book. And all of a sudden the extra ink, it's like, I can't do this anymore. I have to. <laughs> I will say it is fun. Uh, most people like they'll they'll tank like wisdom or charisma. I tank one of the physical ones. Uh, it can be fun. I tanked constitution one time. That was rough. That was rough. <laughs> I was I was playing someone who had a chronic like illness, and uh, she kind of had to rely on her pet to do most of her fighting for her. Basically, we homebrewed that she was an artificer, and she made like um a mech, like a little mech. And she basically had to hide behind him. And most of her ability came from the spells that she cast in her mech. But if she ever got into combat, she was screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Which can be a fun character. It can be fun, and it makes it a little bit more threatening. Yeah, when I played PF2, um, my all of my damage was dealt through my cat. (laughs) It was just a house cat. Like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Also the party tank. And yeah. I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, I love that. I put that cat in so much danger. That's Sorry. Great. Sorry, Precious. Uh, yeah. Uh, Big Trouble in Little Epsilon. Wonderful one shot. Play it with your friends. Great introduction to Pathfinder 2. I'm Randall James. You can find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. I'm Tyler Campso. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RPGBOTDOTNET, and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. I'm Ash Eli. I am still setting up some of my social media accounts, so those details will come out soon. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. Nailed it. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGBot.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You can find us at Patreon.com slash RPGBot. When you guys disagreed on the question of the week, I, I really wanted to hop in with, like, the old brother, Arthur. Okay, I'm with you, fellas. <laughs>